As Deirdre mentioned, we are continuing this series on the prophets Ezra and Nehemiah with the theme of renewal and experiencing renewal. Renewal being the intensification of the Spirit's normal work of activities, convicting of sin, strengthening in his sense of presence and in the scriptures and in the gospel, repenting from sin, and, and, and feeling uh, increasingly alive and sensing God's movement in us as individuals and in the church as a whole. And it's not the uh, intensification of the Spirit's unusual extraordinary things like healings and tongues and those kinds of things. It's an intensification of the normal functions of the Spirit. And as we mentioned last week... Um, one of the key foundational elements that they've seen throughout history and in Scripture, people that have studied this, studied revivals and renewals, is that one of the, uh, one of the critical elements of renewal, either personally or corporately, is a, um, a deepened awareness and sensitivity to sin. Um, now, coupled with that is an increased sensitivity and awareness of the truth of the gospel. And you can't bear, you can't bear the weight of the sin unless you can, um, can really grab hold onto the comforts of the gospel. And there are many things around us that aren't as they ought to be, which is a way to think about sin. To start out, um, this is our friend Lawrence camping in the North Shore. This last weekend, like 30 below, this is not the way things are supposed to be, <laughs> all right? You're not supposed to have, I mean, he's probably got three pounds of ice hanging off his beard there. Well, that's a little bit light. Um, this is going to be a hard series on me. Um, and as we will see toward the end of the sermon and with the last statement there, you know, renewal has to start with the individual. And if, uh, if, if, if God has given me the task of leading us in this effort in whatever scope it may be, um, it, it, it's uh, necessary for me to see that renewal is going to be a part of this happening in my own life. Well, there are many things around us that aren't, that aren't as they should be. We shouldn't have governments shutting down. Governments are here for the creation of peace and the punishing of evil in this world. That's what the scriptures say. We shouldn't have the kidnapping of a 13-year-old after the murdering of her parents. We shouldn't have families waiting in line for three years for immigration trials and then getting kicked back because their cases have been postponed due to the shutdown. We shouldn't have bitterness and resentment between spouses. We shouldn't have businesses whose executives deceive and steal from their companies. I just, I just was reading through the paper this morning to come up with this list, to be honest with you. We shouldn't have employees who lie about their hours worked or who approach their jobs lazily. We all could list a whole host of things that describe the way things aren't as they are supposed to be. And again, this is a way to think about sin. This is a way to think about sin. Well, how do we think about the way things are supposed to be? 
Cornelius Plantiga is a president of, uh, used to be president of uh, Calvin College and, and uh, some other schools. He's a scholar. He's written a book called um, a Breviary of Sin. It's like a short treatment. It's considered one of the major contributions towards the concept of sin that has been written recently. He calls the way things are supposed to be the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. And this is what the Hebrew scriptures call shalom. We oftentimes translate it peace, but peace is not the best way to think about it. It doesn't seem full enough. In the Bible, shalom, he says this, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Universal. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Everything is right. God, his creation, the world, humanity, everything is in unity. And everything is in a place of, of delight, and we've experienced that fullness, or that is the vision anyway. Sin is anything that wars against this ideal. Sin in our own lives, whether an attitude or an ac action. Sin is anything that is corrupt. And the scriptures teach that, that, this, that the very world, creation, is, is longing for the redemption longing for the coming of Christ and so that it can be freed, freed from its state of corruption. Every one of us possesses some notion, okay? They wouldn't all be, ideal, all be exact, but all of us possess some notion about the way things should be. If things were right, all of us have some concept about what, what that would mean. And that, that, that concept or that stirring is a part of the, the image of God in us that he places in all humans. And, and part of it, if you are a child of God, if you have, have read the scriptures, part of it is developed from the scriptures themselves. And that's where Nehemiah finds himself. So this is the very beginning of the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, he's cupbearer to the king. And so he is in the, the uh, palace, the citadel. It's a great place to be. And I think that when we think of the cupbearer, we think of the wine taster, we think of kind of some menial servant, but that is not the case, at least in this context and culture. Oftentimes, the cupbearer to the king had a lot of other responsible tasks, and in some, in some empires was actually considered... Uh, the second most powerful person after the king himself because of his place and the, and the trust that the king would place upon this, this person. And so Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king, probably enjoys a lot of comforts. And we'll, as we see as we'll go on through the rest of the book here and there, we'll see that he actually possesses a great deal of wealth. So he, his brother and some friends come from Jerusalem. 
Now, by this time, there had been some people that have already left. Remember last week we talked about Cyrus gave the order for, for, for Jews to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And we saw that Ezra was responsible for some of those tasks. Well, some people have gone. Nehemiah stayed. doesn't give the reason for why Nehemiah stayed, but Nehemiah stays. But his brother and some friends come back, and he just says, hey, how is it in Jerusalem? And he gets that report. The people are in trouble, the people are in shame, and the walls are broken down, and the gates are destroyed by fire. You guys, this is not the picture that God gives in his scriptures of what Jerusalem was supposed to be. You read in 2 Samuel 7, when God is talking to David, and God is telling King David, David, I am going to give you an heir, and that heir will sit on the throne of Israel forever, and Jerusalem will be the capital of the world forever. The nations will come to it. And its glory and power and wisdom and influence will extend throughout the entire world. That was Nehemiah's picture of Jerusalem. But yet he sees this place where the people are in trouble, which means they are not safe. And not only are they not safe, they are in shame, they're embarrassed because of the weakness of Jerusalem. And as we read through, we'll see that there is opposition and there are tauntings and there are threats against the very lives of the people. And they, they, the, the, the people around them that aren't of God's people um, defame the name of God and they defame the people of Israel and they mock the city of Jerusalem. So there's a great deal of shame and there are, there are no walls. There is no way to protect the people. And this disequilibrium between the way things are and the way things ought to be crushes Nehemiah. It crushes him. So when we observe within ourselves and when we observe the world, to what degree are we crushed? what degree are we stirred? You know, I was reading last weekend just kind of the narrative around the uh, abduction of Jamie Kloss and the murdering of her parents, and I just started weeping at the kitchen table, and Anna was sitting there, and I didn't want her to see me, so I ran off to the bathroom. <laughs> I don't like to be vulnerable. But it was so sad, that story. But you know what? I didn't pray. I have prayed for that situation, but I didn't pray then. I didn't fast. I just went back to my breakfast and the paper. I think we have to ask, what, at what point does the sin of the world and the sin in ourselves really disgust us? And if we're not disgusted by it, then we need to be. And this is one of the things about renewal. We've, we've got to expand our ability to be disgusted by our own sin and by the sin around us. To what extent are we dissatisfied with the progress of the gospel in our own lives and in the lives of the people that we pray for, our families or our friends? Which is... a 
the vision for the kingdom of God. The gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. It is an outward moving force. The darkness is passing away. The light is shining and expanding. Do you ever ask, do we ever ask, why is the light not expanding enough? Or I certainly would like to see the light expand more. So, many of you, if not most of you, or all of you, those of you that are guests, um, this church, in many ways, uh, has observed over the time that we've been here, 10, 11 years, um, the story of our own family, my own story, the raising of our kids. And I'm not going to get into a lot of detail up front. But many of you know the challenges that have been and that continue to persist within our own family. These have stirred me. Um, I have friends that don't know Jesus Christ, and these have stirred me. And I have prayed significantly for these things over the years. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I've had the response, enough of a response. So what, is, what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah turns to God in his stirring, and it says that he fasted and prayed. Now, he says in the passage that he fasts and prays for days. Chapter 2 begins four months later. Four months later, he, he, he prays that God would help him with this man, the man being the king, and he says, I'm cupbearer to the king. And the second chapter starts, the story continues, it was four months before he, he acted on the stirring. Now, I don't think he fasted for four months. I think he had intermittent fasts throughout the four months. And he prayed, but it says that he prayed and fasted for days. And so I think that there was probably this initial stirring that prompted him to this anguishing prayer and fasting. And then over the four months, probably continued prayer and intermittent fasting. And then, and then he says that he worshiped God and acknowledges God and his character. He says that God is an awesome and powerful God who keeps his promises and that his love is steadfast. His affection for us is steadfast. For those who love him, you know, there's the promise in Romans chapter 8 that we oftentimes like to say to ourselves and to others that, that, God, will, that will, God will work all of the things in our lives, the evil things in our lives, God will, will twist and mold and shape and carve and weave our lives, all of those evil things, into something that is good, which is uncomprehendable in many ways. But he will take all of the evil of our lives and twist it to the good through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will see it for the, we will see the evil in our lives as good when he's done with us. But he says, for those who love God. For those who love God. And so, Nehemiah understands the affection that God had for him and for his family and for the people of Israel. And he knows that he is a promise-keeping God that is steadfast in his love for us. And that gives him, the, his comprehension of God is what I would say strongly energized his prayer and his fasting. 
And then we, ha- so we have to ask ourselves, because of these conditions that are on these promises, right, are, do we love God? Do we love God? The greatest commandment, that you would love God. That's what the people ask Jesus. Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? That you would love God, and the second is like it, that you would love your neighbor. And that is a tough question. I think when most of us are asked that question, or if we give that question to ourselves, a lot of doubt can come in, because I think that oftentimes we interpret or measure our love through our emotional experiences. And, um, and that's part of it. I'm not going to say that that's not a part of it. I think feeling love towards God is, is something to experience if you love God. But the test of God's, the test of our love for God, according to Jesus, is, is if we love God, we will keep his commandments. If we love God, we will keep his commandments. Because, to, and, and Paul says, we've, we love because, we love because he first loved us. And so someone that loves God is someone that has recognized who God is as expressed in his love toward us. And a lot of the times in the scriptures, God's love toward us is expressed in how he provides and cares for us. Okay, so do you see the things in your life as an expression of God's love for you? Your food, your clothing, and shelter. And I think it really starts there. And obviously, if you are aware of the, of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ paid uh, to break evil and to destroy evil in your personal life through faith or in all of the world, which he's going to do. Your experience of the love of God and your experience of, of evil being broken in your life is dependent upon your faith in Jesus Christ as Son of God and Savior and as someone who indeed does have the power to address your evil. A lot of times we want to confess our sin. And that's good. <laughs> to repent of it, though, is a sorrow-filled and painful process. And many of us back off from that. Do we love God enough to entrust him with the process of him actually dealing with the evil in our lives? And that is where prayer and fasting comes in over this kind of an experienced way. There, there is a need for us to give ourselves the time and to afflict ourselves. So when we're stirred, how do we pray? Do we pray? Do we fast? Do we worship? Do we acknowledge God as who he is and what he has done for us? And do we see our transgressions? You know, he confesses sin. He confesses his own sin. He confesses his family's sin. And then he confesses the sins of the nation. And the text isn't really clear on this, but I'm ex- I, from experience, I've had moments in my life where there is some deep-rooted sin that most of the time I'm kind of hovering above it and I see it and I know it's there and I know it's going to be pulled out someday, <laughs> that root, you know? And it's not like it's something that you can just say, I'm going to get rid of that. It doesn't work that way. 
But there are moments where if you get to a point of being stirred, and in that moment of stirring, set yourself apart from the everyday and say, you know what? I'm going to pray and I'm going to fast about this. And I think in those seasons of prayer and fasting where you give yourself the time and you afflict yourself enough. Okay, so what is fasting? In some of the Old Testament passages it says that God calls them to afflict themselves for a day. And he's referring to fasting. Um, that, and, and fasting, it... Here's, here's my, here's what I, you know, it's a mystery in a lot of ways, but here's what I think it, it is in a nutshell. Um, it, it prevents us from delighting in some good things that God has given to us, which opens us up to allowing God to make him the object of our delight. Experiencing him is our delight. And fasting from whatever props you use to hold yourself up on a daily basis. Fasting from those things says, you know what, these are not necessarily bad or evil things, but I'm going to stop enjoying them. I'm going to stop delighting in them because I want to delight in God a little bit more. And I want to allow myself the capacity to experience his fullness a little bit more. I think that's what fasting does. At least that's been my experience. When I've done that over time, it has enabled me to see things that I wasn't able to see before. Do we approach this stirring? How do, when, when we're stirred, when this, de- this equilibrium between the way things should be and the way things are is, is great enough, when do we come to a point of, of really pursuing it? And so I always say that, that I... I, I I pursue God diligently in prayer. I feel no conscientious or conscience problem with my prayer life. However, from, my, from a standpoint of fasting and afflicting myself, I have not been an example. So before the series began, knowing what the series was going to be about and not knowing what God is going to do or was going to do in my life or in the life of this church, but longing for it. And I, again, I was doing some reading on renewal, and it just was, I just felt the Spirit prompting us to go this way and for me to go this way. And so I decided to do a couple fasts, different than I'd done before. One of them, um, I obviously eat too much. I started eating, I tried to start eating two meals a day at least five days a week. Generally now, every day of the week, I'm hungry to the point of discomfort. And that's been helpful, and I've lost a few pounds. The biggest one, the biggest one, you guys, and I'm not saying these things. I mean, listen, I am not an, we we are here to honor God and Jesus Christ. And, And fasting and praying should be an expression of our weakness, so that's what I'm doing here. I enjoy a glass of wine, and I've never been drunk and I don't have a drinking problem. But one of the greatest delights in my life is to sit down to a nice meal and a glass of wine. 
I, it, it is a most basic thing. Ecclesiastes says it's those two things are of the four things that we are to find most to delight in in this world. And I do. And I knew that in my heart. And so I said, you know, I am going to not drink alcohol for a month. Like, ooh, big deal. You know what? It was the removal of a strong delight in my life. And by the second or third day, I could tell that, that, that God was exchanging a good delight, but not the greatest delight for him. Again, I, I haven't approached this from the perspective of, I mean, it, I, I want to see some things really powerfully change in my family. And I really want to see some things powerfully change in this church and in the, the lives of the people around me that don't know Jesus Christ. And so that was basically the start. God, I, I want to experience a greater sense of your power in my life and in the lives of people around me. I want to say the last time I did, I did something like this where God really got to the root of something was when I did a two-day fast of no eating or drinking while well, I had water. Uh, at Passamon Terrace, and it was very helpful. And I needed that time, and I think Nehemiah needed this time. We all need the time that removing some delights, and I don't know what that means for you, but we, we need to push away our delights for a while, afflict ourselves, and ask God, God, I need you to answer your promises here. <laughs> I, I need you to transform my body into Christ-likeness here. He promises that in Romans chapter 8, that God will bring life to our mortal bodies. Not the promise of eternal life in the future, that is a promise, but the promise of the gospel is that he will bring life to our mortal bodies. Our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, our bodies, what we do, our actions. He will bring life. And that promise is something that we've got to hold on to. And so I started this process, this series, for my family, for us, for the church, and I think I wasn't thinking enough about myself in terms of, ooh, I'm in this place of great need, but it, that's what God is doing. The journey's not over yet. I think it's just beginning. Yesterday, we had a really challenging incident in our family. And I went to bed thinking about it, and I woke up, and I felt the Holy Spirit and I, I just could not ignore the truth that he was speaking to me. Yes, there's blame to go around in the, in, within those in my family that are, were involved in this situation. Um, but God wanted to shine the, the truth in, in, in my responsibility, which is, I would say, the most significant of the burden. And you know you wrestle back and forth. No, it wasn't that. No, that's not what my motivation. You, you wrestle. And I think it, you need the time to get clarity. What is it that I actually did? Where is my actual sin? And that's why I think it's important that we, we enter into these times of affliction and we enter into these times of prayer, not just willy-nilly, 
not with a specific time frame in mind necessarily, like one day of fasting. You know, one day of fasting that just kind of gets you through the hunger. It, it's in days two and three and beyond that I think that God starts to work. At least, again, that's in my experience. It's important to take the time to process. So here's kind of where I'm at now. I need to take a few days to write. What, what exactly happened? I need more clarity on that. And more importantly, how am I going to confess this to the people that I need to confess this to in a way that isn't putting blame on others and is solely on myself, but is clear. So, you know, it, uh, he's the cupbearer. He's the cupbearer to the king. He's in a place. He's in a position. And as I thought about this, it's not, this wasn't my intended take on this, but if I'm in this place where the Spirit is calling us as a church to, to, for renewal and for a greater experience of the gospel in our lives and in the lives of those around us, um, Should I not expect me to go through this process in a really significant way? I didn't know that. <laughs> but I feel that that is what is happening. So I will keep you updated on the process as we go through this series. And I would ask for your prayers. The cupbearer was in a unique place at a unique time to fulfill his role in the kingdom of God. None of us are going to be like Nehemiah, maybe. He had a place that affected thousands and thousands and thousands of people, not only in Israel, but also in Persia. And maybe some of us are in places to influence that kind of a way. But God isn't concerned about us being big and making a name for ourselves. Some people are going to have fruits of five, 50 and 100. And it is completely within the scope of God's work that defines what our scope of influence will be. But here's the reality. Every single one of you is in a place to have an effect for the kingdom of God. Every single one of you in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your spheres of relationships within your families and he wants to break open the darkness in those spheres and extend the light of the kingdom into those spheres, beginning with you. And if it doesn't begin with you, if it doesn't begin with you, it's not going to begin. It's not going to begin. So are you stirred? Is the disequilibrium that you see in your world between the way things are and the way things should be, is it enough? Is there a real stirring? Now, if not, then you have one or two problems. You have a light view of, of your sin and you have a light view or have ignored or removed yourself from the sins of the world. And so the sin isn't that big of a deal. That could be one problem. The other problem is you have a dim view of the greater world of the kingdom. 
Like if, you don't, if you don't have a bright enough vision for your life and the kingdom of God through, in and through you, then that's, you're not going to see the contrasting darkness of the evil that exists in you and around you. You're just going to kind of see everything in terms of this grayness. And God doesn't see things in that way. This world is a mess, but so are you. <laughs> so am I. We are messes. We are messes. If there is a stirring, if there is a stirring in your conscience, sometimes that, that, that stirring or sometimes that conscience is just an uneasiness because you really don't want to be stirred. You know that if you go down this route, things are going to get uncomfortable. You know that serious prayer is going to be uncomfortable. Just, it, just the standalone fact of the taking time and attention and serious praying is hard work. You know that it's going to be uncomfortable to carve out some time to pray. It's going to be uncomfortable to give up those things that you enjoy eating and drinking. It's going to be uncomfortable in potentially giving up the comforts of life. Nehemiah leaves the citadel. He leaves the palace. And he goes and lives on the ground in Jerusalem. God may call you to something uncomfortable, even for a season or long term. Or maybe not. Nehemiah went back and served under the king after he was done with his work. And it may be uncomfortable in holding forth the word of God in your spheres. Maybe you don't want to have the boldness to share the gospel with people because you don't know how they're going to respond and fear of persecution or rejection is going to be uncomfortable. So a lot of times when we, when we feel stirred, it's, okay, I don't want that. So we won't pursue it. You, you've come to know Jesus Christ, you prayed the prayer, you walked up the aisle, you responded to the call. And now you know you're secure in eternity in heaven. That's not following Jesus. It's just not. I'm not saying you're not saved. There are, in, are plenty of places in the scripture where the people of God no longer faithfully follow him, but they're still the people of God. But it's not following Jesus. And it's not grabbing hold of the life, which could be the second reason why we don't want to stir because we believe that where we're at in our life is, is, is life. Plantiga says this, he says, the heart of sin is rather the persistent refusal to tolerate a sense of sin, to take responsibility for one's sin, to live with the sorrowful knowledge of it and to pursue the painful way of repentance. Evil people are simultaneously aware of their evil and desperately trying to resist that awareness. So if you have, if you have stirrings in you, that stirring might be this tension that you feel about going forward in pursuing renewal in your life. Because where you're at is fine. 
sin's not too bad. Maybe life is better this way in following Jesus, but I don't really believe that because life is really good right here. So you acknowledge sin, but not enough. But you need to understand that life is much more fragile than you think. Everything could crumble. Your health could crumble. Your jobs could crumble. Your house could crumble. Your marriage and your children could crumble if that's what you have. And Jesus promises a greater kingdom than the one you're in. And Nehemiah knew the scriptures, and he knew that Jerusalem wasn't the way it was supposed to be, and he had a vision. And God has a vision for the way your life is supposed to be, and it's greater and more joyful and more fulfilling than the one you're in now, because this world does not fulfill. And you know it, but maybe it's fulfilled enough. Maybe it's fulfilled enough. You're mistaking comfort for shalom. Where you're at is not shalom. We'll never meet full shalom until we see Jesus enter in his kingdom. Comfort is not shalom. And it will erode. And it's also selfish. Because there are many people in this world that will never get to a place of comfort, that will never get to a place of peace where they can just say, I don't need help. I don't need Jesus. I don't need Shalom. Everything is fine right here. Many, if not most, people are in that place. And God has called us as his people to follow Jesus into taking Shalom, the kingdom of God, into the world around us. And he's promised to give life to our bodies in the process. And he's promised to bring that about. That is the promise of the gospel. Jesus models it. He gives his life so that others might find it. Jesus compels us to the better experience because it says, for the joy set before him, he did what he did. He was God in heaven. But for the joy set before him, he went through what he went through. He saw a joy down the road that compelled him. And he enables us to follow him through the Holy Spirit that he gives us and the promise of a greater life and a greater place and a greater experience of the kingdom. He promises shalom if we follow him. Maybe you're stirred, not because you're trying to avoid it. <laughs> Maybe you're stirred because you've been a slacker. Yes, I have not been taking this seriously enough. Yes, I can do more. I can fast. I can pray more. I can be more disciplined. Yes. And so you're stirred to do more. You want to make a difference. And you recognize you just haven't been at it hard enough. Well, that's true. You haven't. I haven't. But that guilt for not doing enough isn't enough. It's not going to get it. <laughs> You're not going to be able to enter into the process of renewal just because you feel bad enough. It's not, gonna, it's not going to motivate you enough to push through because of what it does. And I know this. This is what I'm skillful at. It's like when I'm reading this article about this girl who was kidnapped and her parents being killed, I run to the bathroom so Anna doesn't see me crying. Hard workers, determined people, disciplined people do not want to be vulnerable and they do not want to expose themselves. It's not about doing more. It's not about doing enough. It's not, enough, it's not about just grinding through the hard work. 
that bypasses brokenness, vulnerability, confession, and repentance, which he calls, called earlier, what's he, what do he say? He says it's the, um, it's the sorrowful knowledge. We, we're avoiding the sorrowful knowledge and the painful way of repentance. And this is a works-based approach to earning the favor of God. If I do enough, I will accomplish it. You know, God doesn't owe you by doing, you do more. God doesn't owe you. Plantinga says, "Evil, evil perverts religion as well as everything else that is vital and momentous. When it does, religious beliefs and practices may mutate into a self-serving substitute for the service of God. Do you want to experience God? Do you want to, you want to experience his, the fullness of his promises and an experience and fullness and felt sense of his love and care and affection for you and his power? That's why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 that you would know every dimension, his height and breadth and width and depth of the love and of the power of God. And if you experience those, there's going to be an experience that is beyond what you can ask or think or imagine. That is the promise. We can't work towards that. That is a work of God through his Holy Spirit in us. And it's not works that are going to get us there, but brokenness about our own sin that starts the process. Are we, do we trust God enough to do that in us? God doesn't owe us his favor. We can't work for it. It has been given and most times we're running away from it as Christians because we don't want to deal with the sorrow and the pain that true repentance is going to bring. Because we're going to have to expose our sin and then confess it to the people that we've sinned against. That's what God wants to do. And if you haven't experienced the, the full exposure and confession of your sin and of the sense of God's love that comes afterwards and of his care, and of the shalom that he brings, then give it a try, because it is unbelievable. If you're stirred for the desires of the kingdom, if you're not running away from the pain of it, and if you're not thinking you can just mask it by religious practices, if you really are stirred for the kingdom, then give yourself some time to pray and to fast and to yearn for the power of God in your life. Let me pray.